Welcome to Cure Chronic, a place where we have deep conversations and hear amazing stories about chronic disease and more. Here's your host, Becky Gale. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm super excited to announce another guest coming from all the way sunny California. And I'm super jealous because it hasn't been sunny here in weeks, actually probably since last summer. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Haley. Haley, why don't you go ahead and tell us your story? Hi. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me, Becky. It's such an honor to be able to share my story on this platform and hopefully reach other people that are going through what I went through or even just something similar in um, the chronic illness sense. And um, yeah, so I'm just honored to be able to share my story. So to kind of just jump into it because it could really be a long story if we let it. Um, So it all started, I would say, my senior year of college. Um, I was living with two of my best friends, and I had had kind of a rocky few college years, uh, just with kind of weird um, things, like one of my close friends was killed, and I worked as an RA, and there was just a lot of um, things that had happened, and so it was a it was a rocky start to college. Um, And by the time senior year hit, I was just ready to kind of enjoy my last year with my friends, kind of relax if I wasn't working. And uh, yeah, I started noticing that I was falling asleep a fair amount and kind of not going to class as much. And I kind of just wrote it off as senioritis um, just because that's what seniors do sometimes. Uh, And my roommate started to notice that I was sleeping, you know, a lot more than usual. And they brought it up a couple times and I was like, oh, I'm just tired. I don't know. And I kept making excuses for it. And then I started noticing that I was getting a lot of stomach aches after I ate food and I couldn't really pinpoint which foods were causing the stomach aches. So I thought maybe I was just like having anxiety or maybe just stressed because I was um, studying interior design at the time and our uh, big project was due. And so I thought, oh, it's just stress from that. But it got to a point where I was only able to eat like two things that weren't really causing prominent problems. And my parents knew about it and they had said, you know, let's just get you through the semester. So I barely got through the semester. I got to winter break and we thought, okay, it'll subside. It didn't. Uh, I went back to school, saw a nutritionist and they were like, well, I hope you don't have something like IBS because that's always, that's hard to pin down. I never heard of IBS before, irritable bowel syndrome for anyone that doesn't know what that is. And I was really like, oh, I, I don't know. Like, let's see, let's see what's going on. I tried taking out some foods, nothing really changed. Uh, I had, um, it was Super Bowl Sunday and I lived in San Jose at the time, which is where they were having the Super Bowl. So my friend and I went to like this little restaurant downtown and I had new, just plain noodles. I made sure there was like no salt, no butter, no nothing on it because I was like so nervous that um, maybe I would get sick from it. And I got the sickest I'd ever been. And I called my parents and was like, okay, there's something really, really wrong and I, I need help. And that kind of started the whole five-year journey of like trying to figure out what was wrong exactly. So um, after that, I was in my last semester of college. We saw um, a GI doctor in my hometown. And he basically said, like after he did some tests, 
that eh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. I've seen worse. At that point, I'd lost 30 pounds in literally in a month and a half. And I wasn't able to stay awake. I was having so many symptoms and stomach aches and nausea and to be so um, belittled by the doctor. And it was just, yeah, it was a really hard experience. And um, he told me to stop crying and get over it. And my dad, who my dad never speaks up really, like he likes to hear people out, respect people. Of course, this is a doctor, but he stood up and said, no, like we're not taking this. We're going to leave because you're disrespecting her. And we left and I cried to my dad, like, what's going to happen to me? Like, what's, what's wrong? And um, he's like, okay, we're going to figure it out. I barely graduated, barely graduated because I wasn't able to stay awake. And um, over the summer, I started seeing the physician in my hometown and she started threatening me with a feeding tube because she said that I had an eating disorder and I was choosing not to eat. Yeah. So um, that was not what was happening. And I tried to tell her that and she just wouldn't listen. And um, one of the times towards the end of the summer, she said, you know, if you don't start eating, I'm going to call the eating disorder clinic. They can come pick you up from my office and they'll take you there. And I was so like horrified and it was just, it was very traumatic. Um, and ultimately she said, you know, well, let's send you to an eating disorder clinic. And I said, well, I don't have an eating disorder. And she's like, well, they'll figure out what's wrong with you. If we send you to the San Francisco, like eating disorder clinic, they have some of the best doctors working there. They'll be able to figure out like why you can't eat. So that's what I was told. Um, that's not what was happening, but that's what I was told. And that's all I could really put my hope in at that point. You know, I don't even remember this summer at all because I was just so out of it. And um, I finally got into the clinic in San Francisco. Uh, I ended up being there for a year while I was there. Um, I was 22 at the time. And this was a teenage eating disorder clinic. And I had gone in from the get-go telling them, I don't have an eating disorder. I'm here because I want you to figure out why I can't eat. And they said, okay, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And um, that's why I stuck around. And so I had, it was, it was outpatient. So I was able to go home, um, but I would go to the city um, two or three times a week for them to like check my weight, do all these like tests and then speak to a therapist. And I thought, okay, like this is just the beginning and then they'll start doing investigative work. And they never did. And so three months in, I was like, okay, you guys keep saying next time you'll do investigative work and then you don't. And so I just started missing appointments because I was like, I'm not gonna go like get my weight taken and then be made to feel bad about it when like, I, I don't know what's happening. And um, I did keep going to therapy because, uh, ironically, well, that was the only place I felt heard, of course, the therapy office. Um, but I was telling her, you know, I don't have an eating disorder. I don't have an eating disorder, which, of course, is what someone with an eating disorder might say. Ironically, I realized that later. Um, and so in, in that process, uh, I finished out that year I still was being looked at um, occasionally for my weight, but mainly was therapy centered. And I tried to introduce new foods and I would have 
a weird reaction. I tried different diets. I had a nutritionist that worked with me and everything hurt. And so at the end of that year, um, I happened to be like at a coffee shop with a friend, which I never went out. So this was a big deal for me. And I had stepped out of the coffee shop to talk to insurance. And I overheard this girl talking to her friend about how everything she ate made her sick. And she looked like she was my age. And so I went up and talked to her. I was like, I'm so sorry to like intervene, but I'm going through this right now where everything I eat is making me sick. And like, did you figure out what it was? And she was like, yeah, I have celiac disease. And I was like, celiac disease? Like I'd, I kind of had heard of that, but I didn't really know what that was. And so we ended up meeting up separately a week later and she told me all about it. And I was like, that really sounds like what I have. So um, I tried to get in at the, at UCSF um, to see the GI doctor to be assessed for that. And the eating disorder clinic wouldn't allow it. And so I found that um, there was a pediatric GI through UCSF that actually did psych work and was a GI. So he specialized in how like the brain and gut work together kind of thing. And so I argued my point of, okay, send me to this guy. If he says it's in my head, then maybe it's in my head. But if he says it's not, then let's explore more options. And so they let me go see him. Within five minutes of me talking to him, he was like, it sounds like you have celiac disease. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was thinking because my cousins also had gluten problems. But at the time, I didn't really think gluten was a real thing because there was such a stigma, you know, surrounding gluten. Um, and so he sent me to the celiac specialist and I did the gluten challenge. And sure enough, we do the endoscopy and they were like, yep, textbook celiac disease. And so um, I was diagnosed and that was in 2017. So that was a year after I graduated. And so I obviously left the eating disorder clinic. Um, and then I started seeing nutritionists. I went glu like strictly gluten-free, which if um, listeners aren't super familiar with celiac, you really can't have any gluten, not even a crumb, um, because it damages the villi in your small intestine. And yeah, it's really bad. So um, it can take some time to heal. And I knew that, but I wasn't really getting any better. And so I started seeing more and more nutritionists, still was having issues, nothing was really right. And I spent that next year or two years seeing countless doctors. I think I saw every specialist you can pretty much think of. I was seeing, having probably three appointments a week with different doctors, having every single one tell me it was in my head. Every single one. Like, Everyone said, oh, like, it's in your head. It's not real. Um, you look totally fine. I think that you just have, like, psychosymptomatic, like, things going on. You're not having gluten, are you? And I, you're not cheating, are you? I was like, no, like, I'm not. And I know that this isn't gluten. It's every food. And they couldn't understand why every single food would be causing a problem. I tried all the diets in those two years, like AIP, the autoimmune paleo protocol. Um, I tried FODMAP diet. I tried like pretty much every diet um, and none of them worked, not a single one. And some foods would work one day and then the next day they wouldn't work at all. So it was really, really frustrating. And um, fast forwarding to the third year, because again, the story could really go on for so long. Um, 
the third year, I got sent to a functional medicine doctor, which at the time I was like, what the heck is a functional me- functional medicine doctor? Like, you know, I grew up going to Western medicine doctors and anything outside of that, I honestly thought was like some weird magic, like, I don't know, witchcraft stuff. Um, and so I was kind of weirded out by it, but I actually saw a functional medicine doctor through Stanford. So um, she's a physician there. And come to find out, she actually um, had MS or has MS herself, and she knew that Western medicine wasn't going to be able to help her, so she studied um, functional. And so she was a huge resource for me. She started doing a lot of different tests, um, a lot of functional medicine tests, which test for different things than Western medicine typically looks for. And um, on one of those tests, it came up um, that I had tin poisoning. So um, heavy metal poisoning is pretty rare. Um, And out of heavy metal poisoning, tin poisoning is really, really rare. Um, For those that don't know what heavy metal poisoning is, there's heavy metals in our environment and we're exposed to them every day. And some of those metals need to be in our bodies to function. Um, But when you get too much of one metal that you don't need, Um, It can actually poison your body and block detox pathways, which can actually lead to disease. So um, we found that I had tin poisoning and pretty severe dysbiosis, which is um, when your gut microbiome is messed up. And um, yeah, and so we found that. And so that indicated and kind of went along with the other things that we'd found that were small things. but none of them really made sense as to like being the bigger problem. And so um, this was January of 2018 or 2019, sorry, um, that this happened. And they, she sent me to a nutritionist, a specialized nutritionist to do um, a very specialized plan where uh, you have this powder that Basically, anyone should be able to have this powder and have no reaction. It's supposed to help balance your body um, and kind of get it back to a state where it's healthy so that you can try and eat food again. And so people that have like really severe SIBO, for example, would do it. And um, it's called the elemental diet. And so I started trying to do that and I couldn't do it. I was getting sick from it. And she'd never seen that or heard of that before. And so... I had those two things kind of happening simultaneously in January. And one weekend I got the sickest I'd I'd ever been out of the four years or whatever. Um, I was vomiting. I had this severe pain in my side. I thought my appendix burst. Um, I just, I couldn't explain it. And I was too afraid to go to the ER because I didn't think anyone would believe me because I'd been told for so many years that it was not real and that it was in my head. And I'd really questioned myself, like, what, like, was I making this up? I didn't even believe me anymore. And so I didn't go. Um, and my parents were watching me obviously. Um, and we went to the doctor the next day and she said, Oh, you just had the flu. And I was like, this is not the flu there's no way this is the flu. And she was like, Haley, like I said before, if you don't start eating food, I'm going to put you on a feeding tube. And I just was so 
frustrated. I'm sorry, my feeding tube is going off, ironically, as we're talking about it. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, yeah, and so she um, said that, and I got in my car, and I sat there and felt so defeated. Um, I just didn't really know what else to do. It didn't feel like anyone had any direction. At this point, I'd been heading up my care for two or three of those years. Um, I'd been kind of being like, hey, test me for this, test me for this, let's try this, doing my own research, and nothing was really coming up. And I had um, been in a master's program also during this time online because I just felt like I needed something else to do while I was at home. And um, I said, if I don't have a diagnosis by the time I finish grad school in July of 2019, then I'm moving on with my life because that'll be five years. And I just, I can't do this anymore. Everyone's saying it's not real. So maybe it isn't real. Maybe if I move on with my life, it'll go away. Or maybe I just need to learn to deal with it. Maybe I'm just really sensitive. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what I decided. And in January, when all that happened, I said, okay, like I've got a couple months before my, my self-imposed deadline. And so I'm going to need to figure this out for myself because it doesn't look like anyone else is going to do it for me. So after that appointment, I went in my room, locked my door, and I just researched and researched and researched. And instead of going into the normal research that I did before, I went into the rare stuff. Like we clearly were beyond anything normal. Um, and I came across something called gastroparesis and um, it's basically stomach paralysis. And I never heard of that before. Um, oh, but I should explain why I went to that in the first place. Um, when I started doing my research in those two weeks, I started by reviewing all of my files from the very beginning of my journey. And I was just gonna go through all of it and see if anything had been missed or anything could point me to some kind of diagnosis, you know? And I didn't have to look very far because the very first test that I did and the very first line, it said, that I had gastric stasis, which basically means that there was food in my stomach, an abnormal amount of food in my stomach, when I'd been fasting for over 24 hours um, for my endoscopy. Now, gastric stasis is basically gastroparesis. So that doctor, my very first one that made me feel so bad, wrote it down on the very first line, but never addressed it with me and never said it was anything, said there's nothing wrong and it was all in my head. But the diagnosis was there the whole time. Yeah, so. You're kidding. <gasps> That's so bad. It was, I was so like, I mean, I was, I was overwhelmed because again, I, I know I haven't gotten to actually being diagnosed with that part, um, but I saw that and I said, gastric stasis, what the heck is that? No one ever talked to me about this. And one quick Google search, first thing that popped up was gastroparesis. I was like, what's that? And come to find out it was like stomach paralysis. And I was like, wait, what? And I started looking at girls on YouTube because um, it was mainly women um, that were sharing their stories on YouTube and on Instagram. And oh my goodness, I just 
could not believe what I was reading. It was me. Like it was a textbook me. And um, I spent another week specifically researching gastroparesis. Um, I joined all the like Facebook groups, started asking questions, you know, because I didn't want to bring this to a doctor unless I felt really sure. Um, and I got to a point where I was like, you know what? No, I feel really sure. And I took it to my parents and said, look, I am, I would be willing to bet money that it, that it's this. Um, I, I found a specialist at Stanford. I just need to get referred over there. I got referred over to um, a motility specialist. Um, they have a motility clinic at Stanford, which is basically um, a GI clinic that specializes in how your uh, gut functions. So like the movement of food through your GI tract and got referred over there. And um, yeah, I had my meeting with her in May of 2019. And I told her and she said, well, it sounds like you might have gastroparesis. And I was like, okay, so what do we do? And so she tested me um, with a smart pill test. Basically, you, uh, you have to eat a whole bunch of eggs and toast with jelly on it, which for someone who can't really eat food, like that's a lot. Um, and you have to swallow this giant pill that most people actually like choke on. Like it's really, really big. And um, I did the test and you wear like a kind of like a little machine around your neck for a couple of days and the pill goes through your whole GI tract. So um, it monitors like the pH level, how long it's in each organ through your GI tract. And um, I learned how to read the machine just by, through my own research. And so I, I could see very clearly on the machine that that pill was stuck through, it was very clearly stuck in my stomach for an abnormal amount of time. Um, and so come, I think it was June 16th, 2019, I finished my, I finished my grad school thesis at 8 a.m. that morning, and I had my result appointment at 10, and my mom and I were going over there, and I was like, you know, mom, this is it. If it's not this, then we're done, because that's what I said, and I got there, and she came in. She's like, oh, yeah, so you have gastroparesis, and I was like, praise Jesus. I was so happy. Like, there's no words to describe, like, the joy and then she said, oh, but you also have intestinal dysmotility and something called chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. And I was like, wait, what? Like, these are things that I hadn't looked up or heard of. And um, she went on to explain that gastroparesis is essentially when your stomach is paralyzed, so food just gets stuck and it sits in there. So a normal person, your food should be out of your stomach at four hours. Mine was in there at like 12 hours, I think. Um, yeah. So you can, uh, don't imagine it because it's gross, but like, you know, if you leave food out, it goes bad, right? And so that can make you really, really, really sick. Um, and I had been really, really full. I'd been eating maybe 200 calories a day without realizing that it was only 200 calories because it felt like Thanksgiving plus Christmas dinner for me because I was so full. Um, and so that was gastroparesis. Um, intestinal dysmotility is essentially when your intestines are paralyzed. So they don't move. So it would get stuck in the stomach, then get stuck in the intestines. And then chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction is extremely rare. Um, all of them are rare, but chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction is very rare. It's essentially when um, you eat food and your intestines act as though there's a complete bowel obstruction. So 
people that have bowel obstructions usually go to the ER in pain. They have to get it surgically removed. Um, sometimes people with SIPO, which is the short-term name for it, um, go in with a bowel obstruction and it looks like a bowel obstruction. It acts like a bowel obstruction. You can see it clearly on an x-ray. The intestines um, are completely blown up. And so sometimes they'll even operate not realizing that there's nothing there um, because it's a pseudo obstruction. There's not anything there for them to remove. So you kind of just have to sit it out. So this whole time that everyone said it was in my head, it absolutely was not in my head. And um, yeah, so that was a very validating day. It sounds, I'm sure you can relate and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate, but it was the best day of my life. And um, I can't even put into words the joy. I didn't care that I finished grad school. I didn't care about anything. I wasn't crazy. And that was the first thing I said, sobbing was, I'm not crazy. It's a real thing. And she's like, oh yeah, it's a real thing. And I was just so happy on cloud nine. And then she goes, well, there's no cure for any of them. Um, they're all chronic and the treatments are all experimental. And I was like, I don't even care. Um, but a week later, obviously I started to realize maybe I do care about that. Um, so the management things for that would be changing up your diet a little bit, trying to eat maybe small meals, um, specifically following a FODMAP diet, having low fat meals um, throughout the day, not really drinking water with your meals, just little things like that, making sure to exercise. Um, that's like more of the natural aspect and like walking around. And then they have medicine. Um, there are certain medications that you can try. They're kind of used off-label um, because there's no actual prescribed treatments for it. It's off labels of what other medications do. Um, and so we had those. We, I did the natural treatments. What else? I did acupuncture. I did a lot of different things. I did a vagus nerve stimulator um, because typically your vagus nerve is the, the issue with why there's dysmotility. Um, none of those things worked for me. And at the same time, while all this was happening, um, I also noticed um, on my Apple Watch that I was getting like these alerts at night um, saying that my heart rate was too low for too long. And I'd get it like 20 times a night. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But I don't, I didn't really know much about it. And I didn't think anything of it until I brought it to my sister's boyfriend who actually worked with Apple Watches and um, health. And he was like, nope, that's, that's you. And that's probably something you should get looked at. So I went to a cardiologist and he was like, oh, you have bradycardia, but like, which is a slow heart rate. Um, but eh, you're 25, you're fine. You have low blood pressure, but you're fine. And I was like, okay, like whatever. Moved on with my life, thought, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's nothing. And then I started noticing um, what I felt was blood sugar problems. And I brought it to my primary care and she said, you don't have diabetes, so you don't have a blood sugar problem. And I said, okay, like, I really feel like I do. Um, and she did a test, um, the oral glucose tolerance test, which actually wouldn't work on someone like me because obviously swallowing and stuff changes. And even though I tried to explain that it wouldn't work, she's like, no, it'll work. It'll work because she of course didn't understand my diagnoses. Um, and she said, you're fine. You don't have any problems. So, um, I went to London for my graduation because my school was actually in London. So my parents and I went to my grad school graduation and I was very, very sick. 
I lost a lot of weight on that trip. Um, and it was very clear that I had something like deeper going on. I had gotten a blood sugar monitor, um, because it was recommended to me by my GI doctor. And we found that I was actually having hypoglycemic episodes and, um, yeah, so I was having a lot of low blood sugars and didn't really know why. Um, and when I got back, I noticed that I was choking on food and I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my parents because I thought it was in my head. Yeah, because that's what happens when everyone tells you it's in your head. You don't believe yourself. And so I just thought I'm making this up. So I just kept choking on food and um, it got to, I believe it was like the beginning of August and I had gotten in the 90 pound range and it just got to a point where I think I had like choked on something and I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. There is something really, really, really wrong. And uh, I called my doctor, told her, and like, you know, when you're like upset about something and you kind of just say it, um, I called her and was like, I need to come in, I'm losing weight and I'm choking on stuff. And um, she's like, you're choking? And I was like, yeah, but that, that's not a big deal because I, I didn't want her to not believe me or whatever. So she had me come in that day um, and she's like, you know, at this point, we need to put you on a feeding tube. Um, that's something that we had talked about. I knew that that was a possibility for me for a long time. Most people um, that do end up on a feeding tube have like one of those diseases. They might have just gastroparesis or just chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction or whatever. Um, and I had three, which was kind of unheard of um, to have that many. And so I'd known for a while that that was a very real possibility. And I finally reached a point where I saw the need for it too. Um, and she said, you know, well, before we put in this tube, let's also test your esophagus and see what's going on. So um, we did a test and found that my esophagus is also paralyzed. And yeah, so that was really scary for me. And I think that was, I, I remember very clearly, I went back and did the test and I came back out to my mom and I just dropped to the floor and cried in the middle of the hospital because it was very clear that it was not just like dysmotility in these small places. It was something that was spreading. And um, I'd done so much research at this point. I knew that they were missing something deeper and no one was willing to like do the work. And um, so I went in to get my feeding tube placed. So I got an NJ feeding tube. It's a temporary feeding tube that basically goes through your nose, down your throat, and um, for some people into your stomach, but for me, it goes into my small intestine. So it bypasses my stomach. Um, and yeah, I had that placed in August of 2019. And while I was inpatient, my best friend is actually a nurse at that hospital. Um, and she came to my procedure and I was talking to her about it and said like, you know, I, I read about something called dysautonomia and I really think that I have it and I'm not leaving this hospital until someone tests me for it because I'm pretty convinced that I have this. Um, dysautonomia is basically when all your automatic functions don't really work. And um, I really felt that that was what was happening to me because I was also turning yellow at the time. Um, yeah, so that was another thing that they all just said, it's fine, it's normal, and it, it really was not. 
Um, and luckily one of the surgeons came in and said, Hey, I was just looking over your chart. Have you been looked at for something called dysautonomia? And I was like, Oh my gosh, please, 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 please send me to the clinic. Like, please. So they wrote me a referral to the clinic. Um, while I was in there, they did misdiagnose me with malls. Um, yeah, median arcuate ligament syndrome, which I'm sure, I don't know if any of your other um, podcast patients have had this, but that's also a rare thing. And um, they had misdiagnosed me actually with that. And so I thought I had that for a little bit. Um, turns out I did not. And then I went to the autonomic dysfunction clinic at Stanford. There's only 150 dysautonomia doctors that are like certified in the world to work on like autonomic dysfunction. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, and so I went there, saw the head of the clinic within five minutes, he was like, oh, you very clearly have this. I'm just going to test you myself today. Like, I don't want to wait. It seems like whatever you have is spreading really quickly. We need to do this test now. And so, um, my mom was out of the country. My dad happened to be with me and we spent the rest of the day doing tests for him. And, um, he came in and he was like, it was like one of those scenes from like a movie where the doctor like pulls up the chair and he's like really quiet and awkward and I was like uh oh um and he was like you know we found that you have uh something called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS um and small fiber neuropathy specifically the autonomic type and we found that you have a rare autoimmune like neurological disease but we don't know what it is but you need to start chemo steroids or IVIG like tomorrow and I was like what <laughs> Is very, very overwhelmed. Um, it was a lot to be thrown all at once. And um, yeah, to kind of briefly like say what those are for people that maybe don't know what that is, um, POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, I believe there was another patient on your podcast that had that, um, is when basically all the things in your body that are automatic don't work well or correctly, uh, but specifically when you stand up, your blood pressure drops and your heart rate tries, it's trying to get blood back up to your heart and to your brain. And so um, your heart rate goes into a tachycardic state. So I could be bradycardic when I'm sitting down. So I could have a 38, like a heart rate of 38, which is very, very low um, when you're awake. And then I can stand up and have it be 208 which is really, really high. And I'd been having dizzy episodes and near fainting experiences, but I, I had pretended like, or thought that that was in my head too. Even though I even fell to the floor, I thought, well, maybe I'm malnourished. Maybe I'm just imagining it. I don't know. And I dismissed it because that's what you're taught when all the doctors don't believe you. Um, and so, yeah, so I was diagnosed with that small fiber neuropathy. I really didn't understand um, too much of that um, at the time. And then the rare thing, the rare autoimmune disease um, and the chemo, IVIG and steroids really threw me off. I didn't know anything about that. He said, we want to start you on that right away. It's spreading really quickly. It's shutting down your organs. I was very scared, um, very scared. And then I found out that because they couldn't figure out what disease it was, insurance wouldn't cover um, the treatment. And so the only option for treatment was just a high dose of a random steroid and hope that it would help. Um, I didn't feel like that was beneficial in any way. I didn't feel like that was even safe. 
we didn't know what we were treating. We, how are we going to know, like, if it's getting better? It's just a lot of questions here. And I felt really, really overwhelmed and lost, did a lot of research. Um, and I just applied to Mayo Clinic. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to accept this. Um, and I applied to Mayo Clinic, got accepted, went to Mayo Clinic for three weeks, um, saw a neuroimmunologist there. And even he at the very beginning said, I've had very few cases like yours, but when I do, they look exactly like yours, where it's a young girl in her 20s, she presents normal. She looks great and fine. And sometimes her neuro exams are a little weird, but nothing like totally jarring. And it changes. Sometimes the neuro exams are normal. Sometimes they're really abnormal and they change day to day. Um, so we did a lot of tests. And um, ultimately, they found that I had autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy, which is an extremely rare case um, of dysautonomia. I know this is all really confusing and a lot of medical jargon, but I'll try and explain it. It basically um, is an autoimmune disease in the brain that attacks the autonomic nervous system. So anything that your body does automatically is affected. Uh, at the time, I also had um, a blood sugar monitor, um, and we found that I was severely hypoglycemic 50% of the time. 50% of the time. Like a diabetic will go hypoglycemic maybe two, three times a week. Um, I'm not diabetic, and I was having very severe hypoglycemic episodes, and I also had hypoglycemia unawareness. So um, I would be 40 or 38, which is very dangerous, and I would be exactly like how I am right now with you. Um, like just talking to you totally normal, which is the very scary aspect of that. Um, and so it was just a lot of different things going on. I came back to Stanford um, and we kind of talked about what the plan looked like going forward. I started doing POTS treatments. So saline infusions a couple times a week. Um, we started planning for a permanent feeding tube. I got a permanent feeding tube in January of 2020. And um, yeah, we'll get to that later, but it was the most traumatic experience. Um, and I got that. And um, that feeding tube is a more permanent way to do it. Uh, it goes into my um, small intestine and into my stomach. And so I've had that for a few months now. Um, and obviously, at this point when we're recording, we have coronavirus happening and the world is obviously craziness. So so many things have been on hold because of course, like I'm really, really high risk. Um, and yeah, so it's been really crazy in that regard. Moving forward, the only treatments for AAG um, are like IVIG chemo steroids. Those are the main ones. And um, all of them are considered experimental for the disease because even though there's enough research backing it, there, the FDA doesn't approve it because there's not enough funding to advocate for it to get on the list. It, it's a whole complicated thing. So insurance doesn't approve it. But here's the thing, Becky, this morning I got the call that my IVIG got approved. So I like have no words to like, today is a good day. Um, but yeah, so the plan now is to do IVIG um, the hope is that it will hopefully put some of these things in remission um, over time. I, we don't know um, how long I'll have to be on a feeding tube. We don't know if any of this stuff will come back. Um, 
or what's going to happen. But uh, yeah, that's the plan now. So I know I went through a lot of diagnoses and a lot of confusing things and the story was very long, but um, I'll quickly say all the diagnoses real quick to kind of sum it up for you. Um, so my main one is autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy, uh, tin poisoning, celiac disease, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, small fiber neuropathy, gastroparesis, intestinal dysmotility, chronic intestinal pseudoobstruction, esophageal dysmotility, Raynaud's, non-diabetic hypoglycemia and hypoglycemia unawareness, muscle tension dysphonia, autoimmune thyroiditis, and I think that's, those are like the main ones, I would say. Um, yeah, so there's my story. <laughs> that's crazy. Oh my gosh. You have like a grocery <laughs> list of problems. I, yeah. I, I can't like, you know, good for you for being such a um, advocate for yourself and standing up for yourself. And I'm so sorry that you had so many doctors, especially your own family doctors, say that it was only in your head because, you know, I was there. I have so many people that have been on the podcast that have been there as well. And it's just, you start to believe that. And the fact that you were in so much pain that day to a point where you could have had something seriously wrong. You don't know if your appendix was burst. You have no idea, but you didn't want to go to a doctor because of the fact that you don't trust them, you mm -hmm. know? And, and for that, it's, I don't know. I was actually talking to someone this morning, actually, and it's, it's the uh, white coat syndrome or whatever it is. They have to be right. So they have to tell you it's in your head, but I can't believe that you had a doctor that said to you, oh, I've seen worse. You're like, thanks mm -hmm. for comparing me to someone else. Well, and to lose 30 pounds in a month and That's a half, bad. Yeah. I, and I was only 21, 22, I think. Um, and, you know, looking back, I think that, you know, I've, I've really worked through it and I try and have grace with these doctors, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was being undiagnosed for so long. I understand all these conditions are very rare, um, yeah. where most of them are pretty rare. Um, that being said, you know, that specific first doctor really angered me and I still struggle with it. I'm still working through that anger, to be honest, um, and trying to forgive him. Um, it just felt like I was so abused. You know, I was so sick. I was so scared. Mm -hmm. I honestly didn't know what was happening to my body and to be told that there's nothing wrong with you but he still gave me 12 different pills. So clearly there was something that wasn't right. And mm -hmm. like, he just totally dismissed it. And it was in his notes the whole time. It was yeah. right there. And that's <sighs> what kills me. That's, um, I actually just had a podcast with a girl named Laura. I don't know if you listen to her podcast, but that happened to her where they had written it in her chart. And then a year later, she's like, what's wrong with me? And then the nurse actually told her like, oh, well, is this because you have endometriosis? She's like, pardon me? Yeah. So no. it's, it's not an uncommon thing. Like this is the second person I've met on these podcasts. Like, you know, and for like, that is huge negligence. Like if I were you, I'd be taking that doctor to court. Like 100%. You're like, you, sir, are going to pay for my treatments for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, I was very, I, I really struggled with that. Um, you know, after, after everything kind of settled, um, I did write him a letter 
Um, and I went and delivered it to his office. I, I waited to give it to him in person, but he um, wouldn't go off. Sorry, that's my feeding tube. Just ignore it. Um, oh, and uh, I waited to give it to him in person. And um, yeah, I couldn't, I wasn't able to see him, but I handed it to them. And in the letter, I really talk about, you know, like, I've been writing thank you letters to everyone that helped me on this journey. And I wish that I could say thank you to you, but I can't. Um, yeah. because you didn't help me because I was a young girl that you just assumed probably had an eating disorder. You wrote me off. You completely like made me feel like this was made up and that I needed to get over it when really I had every right to feel upset and to feel scared. And, um, you know, I let him know like, Hey, I ended up being diagnosed with this later on. And you wrote it down in your notes. So I'm telling you this because I don't want this to happen to another girl. Whether you, whether he throws this away or whatever, he's at least going to remember that, hey, one time this happened with this one girl. And the next time a young girl comes in here and has any symptoms like this, he'll think twice. At least I hope he will. Yeah, you hope so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just so sad. And, and kind of going on a general term here, but it's like, when I was younger, I was the same age as you. I was 21 years old when all this like got really, really, really bad with my Crohn's disease. And I got sent to three different psychiatrists because my doctor thought I was bulimic. And mm. I'm like, and, and yeah. And they're like, there are other people on my podcast, same thing. They're like, because I was young, female, I'm not mm. supposed to be sick. They just shrug it off for whatever reason. I hate to say it, but it's the old white man syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, a hundred, a hundred percent. And mm -hmm. you know, there's, it's like hard because it's like, how much more would you have taken me seriously had I been a male, yeah. you know? Totally. Yeah. Or older, you know, call yeah. it in your forties, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so frustrating. So out of all of that, that you just went through, what was the hardest thing that you went through? So two, I would say the two things, um, the first one being undiagnosed, hands down, hands down, that is the worst, the worst part of the whole experience. You know, I, I know we kind of talked about this earlier, that it's bad when the bet, like the best thing to happen was get diagnosed with multiple incurable chronic diseases that literally take away my ability to eat. And that was still better than being undiagnosed because being undiagnosed is, it's the worst feeling. It's just the worst feeling. No one believes you. Yep. You stop believing yourself, you know, and for me, it went on for four and a half, five years. That's a long time to be undiagnosed. And Definitely. You know, I'm so grateful for my parents because one, they took me in, um, they let, they let me live with them and they paid for my, like all my medical bills and everything. And I know that not everyone is lucky enough to have that. And I'm so grateful that they were able to help me during that time. Um, and they never once didn't believe me. Like there was never oh, a time awesome. that they came in and said, well, I think you might have an eating disorder or, oh, I think this might be in your head. It, they never like didn't believe me. And I think that that was a really big factor in it because I didn't believe me. Many mm. times I didn't believe myself. And um, my parents would be like, well, remember though, you said this and remember this happened. Like, 
when you do really get sick, you're not making this up. You're not just making yourself throw up. You're not, you know, they mm. see it. They see me trying to eat food. Um, and I want to, who doesn't want to eat food, you know? Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was hands down the worst. Um, so anyone that is in that right now, I, I feel your pain and please just keep going. Trust yourself. Cause that's, it's just so hard. Reach out, reach out. Um, and the second one I would say, um, so the second one was when I got my feeding tube placed. So, um, it was in January of 2020. And so this was a couple months ago. And I obviously, at this point I had medical PTSD, um, diagnosed medical PTSD. And, um, I was seeing a therapist three times a week just to be able to like get into the surgery, um, because I was so nervous about, um, how I would handle it because I had been care. I had been doing my own care for so long and kind of guiding it and doing my own research that I didn't feel comfortable being put out for what an hour, two hours while they did this and not knowing what they're doing, which sounds dumb because obviously they're the professionals, but when you have a medical trauma, like where you really can't trust doctors, um, Mm it's really hard to relinquish that control. And so I literally wrote a 20 page, like little booklet of like all the things I expected, all like I had researched so much of how this procedure was done. I had pictures so I would know exactly what to expect. Went over it with the surgeon, Um, everything was okay. And then I, um, I woke up and I, they don't let you see it. Um, I had anticipated, like I knew exactly where it would be on my abdomen. I knew that, um, this kind of feeding tube, it hangs off your stomach for six, it's like six to eight inches, kind of like it it is big tubing. Um, but in like eight to 12 weeks after that, you can get it switched to something smaller. But I knew the the initial one was going to be hard to adjust to, you know, mentally, emotionally, especially as a woman, no one wants to have a permanent feeding tube coming out of their body. That's just, no. <laughs> it's, it's hard. And, um, I knew that and I was preparing for that. Um, I went up to the room and, um, I started kind of coming out of the drugs and, um, started telling them, Hey, like, you know, I don't feel good. Uh, I researched this and I know that it means that you, I need to go to the bathroom. Like this is a common symptom. And they're like, no, you don't know. You don't like, that's, that's not real. There's no way you have to. It's like, no, no, no. I know because I researched, I read a bunch of girls stories that this happens. Didn't believe me for over an hour and a half till finally I got a nurse in there and they can look at your, um, this is TMI, but chronic illness podcast. Um, they can look at your bladder through like this little thing. And they were like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, she need like this. She really needs to like go to the bathroom. I don't know why that procedure causes that for some reason. Um, and so that was the first thing. And then things just kind of started piling on. They, um, put a heating compress on my abdomen, on my wound, which again, I've done a lot of research, but I was coming out of drugs. I was, uh, I was all over the place. Um, I started bleeding everywhere because you can't let a heating compress on the open wound, like so many different things. Um, and so ultimately the head nurse came in, she found, she immediately goes, what are you doing to the nurse? The nurse is reusing certain IV things. She's like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, what is happening? And, um, 
So she's reprimanding the nurse for doing something else wrong. Then she's like, why is your abdomen bleeding? Who put this on your abdomen? Why? Like she's finding all of these things that these nurses did wrong. And I already am like overwhelmed because obviously this is already my fear and I'm crying. And I was like, Hey, like also I already asked the other nurse and I'm still waking up, but I don't think this is in the right spot. And, um, she was like, wait a second. I was like, I don't think they did the right surgery. And I started crying and she goes, uh, what is this? I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, uh, can I take a picture of this and I'll send it to the surgeon and I'll get the GI doctor here. And I was like, okay, wait, like, I was just asking you for like peace of mind. Like I'm still waking up. I was like, this doesn't seem right. Um, and then I, I found like, not only was it on the wrong side, but instead of being like six inches off my body, it was three feet off my body. What? Three feet to my feet, like literally to the ground, which is what unheard of, unheard of. And not what only did they that, do? Great question. Great question. One that we're still asking. And so, um, yes, yeah, so she brought the GI doctor in and it wasn't the surgeon. It was just the one on the floor. And she goes, uh, and I was like, okay, I need you to tell me right now, is this the correct surgery? Because the place that they placed it is actually what you would do for a different procedure. One that I was not getting. And she was like, um, I'm going to have to get the surgeon. And I was like, okay, no, you can't leave this room till you tell me this is the right surgery. She's like, I have to get the surgeon. And she leaves. And I, yeah, it was just very traumatizing. Um, the surgeon came in and long story short, the surgeon was like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Like it's the right surgery, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, this isn't right. You can't tell me this is normal. This is not normal. So me and the surgeon are going at it. He's making it like, I don't know what I'm talking about. All the nurses are whispering. It was just so invalidating. And he was like, my best friend, like love her. This was like kind of a picture of the five years being undiagnosed. You have all these medical professionals on one side of the bed, talking at me, yelling at me, telling me I'm wrong. And you know, my parents bless them, love them, but they just didn't know enough. So they just stood there kind of like, do we do like, who do we believe? Right. Um, and my best friend turned to me, grabbed my head and said, Haley, like, you know, and I know that this is not right. Don't let them yell at you. Like, we're not listening to them. Like, let's, let's just breathe and talk to your doctor that ordered this. And we're going to try and figure this out. Um, and oh the doctor, God. the surgeon was like, just give her something to knock her out. And I, <gasps> I'm very like, seriously, I'm a very calm person and I love people and I want to have grace, but I lost it. I said, nobody gives me a single thing. I don't want any medication that's going to knock me out. So the whole time I was in there for over a week, um, and this is a really painful surgery, mind of you, course, like yeah. recovery wise, never had, um, like the only pain med that I had was very little Tylenol just because I didn't, I was so afraid of being knocked out, giving Ativan or anything that would make my, like, make me not be able to think clearly. Um, and that, that, that night pretty much extended throughout the whole seven days. It involved nurses not knowing my conditions. It involved them not knowing how to use my feeding tube. The feeding tube specialist came in who goes to see every feeding tube patient in the hospital. That's her full-time job. 
she came in, she's seen me before. She goes, Haley, you don't know how to use your tube? And I said, no, I don't look at it. And she goes, what is this? If the feeding tube specialist has never seen this, this isn't right. Um, they started having meetings, uh, shutting down my room. My room was on lockdown. Only two people were allowed in my room because let's be honest, like I, they're a business. They need to protect themselves. Um, yeah. So I could go on and on about this experience, but it, that's like the gist of it. It was very, very, very traumatic. And um, yeah, it was just a lot of negligence, a lot of doctors not knowing why am I having to explain to these nurses mm-hmm. how my feeding tube works, why this isn't normal. Um, ultimately, we did find um, that it, it will work, they, but they did a new procedure that they never supplied the um, actual study on, that they told me they would bring me the study on why they did it that way, never got it, can't find it on the internet, so I'm gonna leave that there. Um, And even when I went in, I just went in this week and to get it checked and one of the new doctors came in and goes, oh, like, so what's going on with your tube or whatever? And we, I go, oh, you haven't seen it. And she goes, oh, you're the girl with it on the wrong side. (laughs) <laughs> I've seen your pictures. We had multiple meetings about you. Oh my God. You have a, you have, you have a name. That's <laughs> so bad. Yeah, so I was like, okay. Like oh. it was very validating. Again, like I feel bad, like being so like angered and frustrated by it. Um, but I'm still <sighs> working through it. And I think that's fair. It It's hard. But anyways, mm-hmm. that's, that's the essence of the two hardest things I would say out of this whole experience. Well, and the other thing too, like, thank God you are a like chronic researcher because had you not known what it was supposed to look like, how it was supposed to feel, how it was supposed to blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you didn't question those doctors, mm-hmm. then what, you know? Exactly. exactly. So. And that's the scary part is, yeah. you know, Um, I was just talking to someone, you know, about privilege and stuff and like, how privileged am I that like, I had an education that Mm -hmm. like I was able to afford. I like my parents were able to help me like get the help that I needed. Um, you know, not every situation is like that. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people in the world, in this community. And, um, obviously we're seeing right now just the injustice in America, um, and how that all plays out. And, you know, I think of what other people's experiences would be you know i'm very privileged so if it's like this for me how horrible is it for them how many girls how many women how many men how many of them are going through this and kind of being sent home with no idea that they actually have something wrong Mm -hmm. no you're so right and 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 it's you know i don't know you know like you think about what you had to go through as a young woman, a young person that, you know, okay, you have health insurance and you have money and you have the accessibility to specialists and, and whatever. And yet they are still telling you that you're not, that you're, that you're not right, that you're, it's all in your head. You know, Mm -hmm. what about people that don't have access to that, that have to go to a free clinic that have to go to, you know, like that's traumatizing in itself. So you know, mm-hmm. but it's, oh my God, I can't believe you went through that as well. That's so frustrating. Yeah. Oh my it's, God. it's been a ride. It's been a ride. Yeah. I try and get the positives of it. Like, um, I'm, so I'm Christian and for me, like 
I've seen where God's like really worked in it for me. And even in that whole experience, like it was horrible. It was traumatizing. But through that, you know, they were able to find tangible, like tangible evidence of my um, intestinal obstruction disorder um, and document it in x-rays. They were able to see that my blood sugar does actually go like hypoglycemic 50% of the time because they didn't believe me on that either. Even though I had all the tangible proof, um, they still didn't believe me. And so when I told them, you need to check me more often than six hours, dude, you need to check me every like five minutes. Um, and they didn't believe me. And so then when they came and checked and I, I was completely fine and I was 50 and that's pretty, that's, that's low. That's not like crazy. I mean, it's, it's crazy low. Um, but they were like, oh my gosh, like, we're so sorry we didn't listen. And it's like, well, oh my God. that's, you know, but I see how God worked in that because then I had those two things that I needed to get mm-hmm. access to other things. So, you know, it stinks and it's hard. And I wish that I didn't have to go through it. I wish other people didn't have to go through it. But, you know, I think everything does happen for a reason, some, some reason. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree with that. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, your case is so unique that it's going to go in a history book somewhere. Yeah. Or in a hey, medical book somewhere, not a history you know, book. <laughs> yeah, well, there's the, the, main <laughs> or both. The, the main specialist for AAG, he um, works in Texas, and he gave a speech like a year ago, and he was like, yeah, I'm the world specialist on autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy. I get about two new patients a year. And he's the world specialist. So, you know, there's very little um, research and data on it. And, um, you know, I think, I know this wasn't your question, but um, I I told you um, before I study interior design. And when I started grad school, um, I did grad school in interior design as well. And uh, my thesis was on health and the interior environment and how the two merge together. little did I know that like I would have gotten sick from tin poisoning and that would then cause all of these other things. So I would actually be like the kind of customer I would want to help. Um, and so, you know, even though this has all been so hard, I really think there's a purpose in it. Like, okay, so it's now combining two of my passions. Like I'm, I'm really interested in the medical aspect because I've had to be, but also I want to help, you know, other people get, the help that they need and see that they can get diagnosed and um, still also do my design work that I'm really passionate about and kind of putting the two together. So I think everything happens for a reason. And even though it's hard, we all have our own paths and this just happens to be mine. Absolutely. So could you give any of our listeners a bit more advice for their struggles? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I would say is be your own advocate. and do your own research because um, I didn't touch on this too much in my story, but the main reason that I even took up, you know, figuring out things was because I was on the phone with insurance in my second year and I had been fighting with them to try and get them to approve to go to a doctor and um, they just wouldn't do it. And I had one of the insurance women on the phone say, well, why don't you just figure it out and do something about it for yourself? And I was so taken aback. Wow. Like, what? That's like, rude. <laughs> yeah, it was very rude. And not only was it rude, it just was like, wait, what? Like, how could you ever say that to someone? I, and I was so shocked. 
And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, well, why don't you figure it out for yourself? And I was like, what does that even mean? Obviously I can't figure it out for myself. I'm not a doctor. And I hung up on her and I was just so angry and frustrated. Um, but I went home and I just kept thinking about that. And I thought, you know what? I have been at the mercy of these people who do not like, they clearly are not spending enough time on it. You know, if you mm -hmm. think about it like a puzzle, like your doctor spends maybe 30 minutes once a month or every other month or whatever, working on this puzzle. They can't see what the picture is supposed to look like. So they can't tell how to put the pieces together. But you as the patient, you know what it's supposed to look like. You know how you're supposed to feel. So you can spend 24 seven working on this puzzle. And by the time you're spending that 30 minutes with that doctor, it's like, okay, you fill in the pieces that I can't. You fill those in, but I got everything else. And it's much more collaborative. And so you know, even though that phone call was so frustrating and angering, it, it really empowered me to say, you know what? No, I'm done being at the mercy of these people. And I'm done being told it's in my head when it's not. And that was the most empowering, like one of the best moments um, of my life, because it helped me feel in control of something that was very uncontrollable. And it helped prepare me for, you know, these big these big things, you know, I casually tell my story. Okay. Yes. It's a very long story. And I say it kind of casually and I can joke about it and stuff, but it's obviously very, very hard, you know, like not eating and being on a feeding tube at this age is very not like, it's not easy. Um, and it's hard. And, um, I think pulling back and like being able to do the research myself and go into those meetings and these appointments and know what they're talking about and being able to on the spot challenge them or say, where's the proof? Show me my x-ray. Let me read the, let me read it myself. And then we'll, we'll agree and we can move forward rather than being like, okay, okay, okay. Going home and feeling like they didn't hear me. So I think the biggest thing that I would advise is become your own advocate, um, do your own research and trust yourself. I think that's huge, especially, you know, for me, I was misdiagnosed for six years and you lose, oh my God. Yeah. When you, you're telling your story, it's like for five years, it's like, yeah, it's so frustrating, you know, mm -hmm. but it's, um, you do, you get to a point where it's like, I went, I got to a point where I'm like, am I bulimic? Am yeah. I doing this to myself? Uh -huh. You know, and you start losing hope in yourself. The other thing that I found that it did after years of being misdiagnosed, mistreated and being told you're crazy and blah, 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 blah. You start, you stop loving yourself, which mm -hmm. is huge because mm -hmm. as soon as you stop loving your body, your body is like, okay, well, how can I function? Like it just makes it so much worse. Your disease gets worse. You get more sick, you get everything. And ugh, yeah, yeah, no, those white coats, man. They need to change. <laughs> they really, they really, really do. And I hope anyone listening to this, you know, like kind of like what you said at the beginning, the whole point of, you know, your podcast and, you know, the whole point of me sharing the story and you sharing your story is we don't want other people to be in our shoes. We don't want 100%. you to have to go through what we went through and be misdiagnosed mm -hmm. for so long. And I know for me, I'd never heard of dysautonomia ever. I never heard of gastroparesis. I never heard of any of these rare diseases. And I listened to so many podcasts. I listened to the lectures and read books and studies and everything. I never heard about it. And had I heard about it earlier, 
you know, it makes you wonder, like if I, if anyone around me had heard about it, maybe I could have gotten diagnosed earlier, similar to you. Like maybe Mm -hmm. you would have realized that it was a misdiagnosis earlier, you know? And so I really hope that, you know, anyone listening to this, that this speaks to them and that this is helping encourage them on their journey too, because it's hard, but we're all in this together. And you've created such a beautiful space for all of us to kind of sit in that and share our stories. So thank you for doing that for us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you know, and I just, it's like you say, like if this helps one person figure out a diagnosis or if this helps one person, whatever, you know, I just, that's, that's what I'm doing it for. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's just so frustrating. I'm not a doctor, but like maybe this will help other people better than some doctors are. So yeah, a hundred percent. Well, Haley, thank you so much for your time and your advice. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah. So, um, you can follow me on Instagram. I would say that's probably the easiest way to, um, contact me or follow me. Um, so you can follow me at Hales. So H A L E S S S S S there's five S's. I know there's a lot. Um, and then also, um, my uh, health and home Instagram is launching soon. Um, And so it's actually going to be a space where I talk about not only all of my diseases and my journey and um, all of that, but also tying in, um, you know, how we as, you know, people with chronic illness and people without that want to prevent illness um, can create healthy home environments that will help us reduce toxic burden in our bodies and um, help us live better lives, live healthier lives and, um, prevent disease. So yeah, they can follow me there at health and home. Um, it's H E A L T A T H A N D H O M E. And then two underscores and yeah, so they can follow me there. That's awesome. And we'll definitely put a link in our podcast description as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Becky. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, our lovely listeners, that's all for this episode. And Haley and I will catch you next time.